with so many new articles coming out each month, who has time to read them all? On each episode of this podcast, we cover one article in the academic field of game studies in 15 minutes or less. Maybe you're an academic looking for a way to stay current in the field while also spending some time on the treadmill. Maybe you're an avid gamer and theory crafter working on expanding your knowledge of game studies. Either way, listen in and listen up. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Game Studies Review. I'm Alex Lane. Today's uh, show is going to be a little different than our normal show. Instead of an article, a co-host, and a 15-minute limit, I'm joined uh, by the author of a book, Play Like a Feminist, Dr. Shira Chess. We're going to uh, keep the show under 30 minutes because, well, we just have way, way, way too much to talk about in under 15 minutes. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me on here, Alex. Um, my name is Shira Chess, and I'm an associate professor of entertainment and media studies at the University of Georgia. And um, I'm author of most recently the book, Play Like a Feminist, and before that, a book called Ready Player Two, Women Players and Designed Identity. And also I wrote a book about the Slender Man, but that's uh, neither here nor there. I would love to do an entire other podcast just on Slenderman stuff sometimes. That would be so fun. Um, the first video game class I taught, we played uh, the Slenderman video game. And it was a night class in this, in this building with all the other offices were closed. Um, so there's no one else there. Just there's five of us in this class playing it. And we shut all the lights off, played it. And then we all had to walk to our cars at night. Oh my gosh, it was, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Uh, so anyway, tonight we're here to talk about Play Like a Feminist. This is published in 2019, and it's part of the Playful Thinking series by MIT. Uh, Playful Thinking is a series of short, readable, argumentative books that share some playfulness and excitement with the games that they are about. Um, the basic assumption is simple video games are such a new flourishing medium that any new perspective on them is likely to show us something unseen or forgotten, including those from unconventional voices, such as artists, philosophers, uh, or specialists in industries or fields of study. I found this book quick to read, this series very fun, uh, especially after reading some of the more uh, academic theoretical articles that we've been doing on the show. Um, this was just a breath of fresh air. So I'm, I'm super, super excited about this whole series and the whole idea behind it. Um, so that is uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to give a little summary and then we'll see, uh, we'll see uh, what, what we get into today on the show. So the Play Like a Feminist, it advocates for exceeding gendered boundaries of play. And if I, if I say something here that you think you're like, no, that's not what I'm doing, shush, then you go ahead and shush me. Uh, uh, and rethinking the essence of play. Uh, chess moves us from thinking about play as an aimless pastime to an activity fraught with social, political, and identity implications. She advocates for women's gaming circles, reminiscent, I'm sure, to all of you, uh, as uh, of the sewing circles that were also fraught with social, political uh, implications, and wants us to think about, in the book, she talks a lot about using play as a way to disrupt, whether it's disrupt the patriarchy, disrupt um, disrupt political uh, activism, di different things like that. Play as this, uh, as this thing that in and of itself is very valuable for social and political implications. Um, so what do you think? Is that, is that an accurate representation of the book? That's a pretty accurate representation. Thank you for that. And thank you for your kind words. All right, cool. Well, I have a, a, my first question to ask you that I'm dying to know the answer of. Uh, you wrote, I, here's a quote, I would indeed like to destroy the video game industry as it is currently known. 
And that just, it took my breath away when I read that. And I want to know, was it scary to publish that? So yes, uh, thank you for asking me that question and yes. Um, so I understood in writing it that I was being purposefully contentious in a space where there were a lot of people already arguing um, to say the least. And however, I also felt like that, I feel like I need to add that there were things that as scary as it was to publish those specific words, there were a lot of things in that book that were equally scary for me to put, put out there. So. Um, Play Like a Feminist is a deeply personal work, which in my opinion is the only way for feminist writing to be. Mm. And I told these personal stories that were like embarrassing and I tried things stylistically that I'd never tried before. And all of that was scary. So I, so like, of course it was scary to say that I wanted to destroy the video game industry as it was currently known. But of course, I also, that sentiment came with all kinds of caveats and context. And I spent the rest of the chapter talking about the uh, the nuances of that statement. Now, of course, I do understand that the, um, the other side of this culture war is not known for their attention to context and nuance. Um, however, this book wasn't for them. So the answer is yes, but just as scary as everything else I did in that in in this book, I, I this was a scary thing for me to write in that I just felt a little like I was writing without a scaffold. Sure, and I, I can absolutely understand that. Um, but your your stories to me, um, I, I can understand why you'd say it was a very personal book because your stories um, were really touching. Uh, the field day, the field day story, and. Um, and things like that, the, they, I think they resonate, they, they at least resonated with me in a way that uh, traditional academics works, even feminist works sometimes don't. So, um, so I would actually include that in the, uh, in the three minute summary of the video of the, uh, of the book here, the, just maybe one of the projects of this is destroying the game industry, caveat, 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 as it is currently known with, with a lot of uh, a nuance. And, and understanding in that. And I would say that is a very, very worthy, worthy goal. Um, so next up, I wanna talk about a few of the major contributions of this work. Um, I had to cut the, cut the list down. I had plenty to talk about. Uh, so here are some of the major contributions if you haven't read the book yet, or if you're trying to decide if this is something that you want to um, get into. So one of my favorite points, I would say one of my favorite things where it was right away in the front page, you lay out who this book is for, the three different audiences, and what they each can get out of it, um, or what you hope they can get out of reading the book. And I thought that was such a cool thing. Why doesn't all, why don't all books do that, right? Like that was just, that was such a helpful way to orient myself to the work. And the, part of where that came from was sort of, was within the book proposal process, right? Like, because of course, when you're writing a book proposal, you have to say like who this book is for. And I found myself in this space where I'm like, well, I'm writing for these people and I'm writing it because I, and just to sum up the who it's for, I was, I wrote this book specifically with the idea of appealing to feminists that don't consider themselves gamers to gamers that may be suspicious at, at best of feminism or or in the certainly in a space that they're not entirely aware of what feminism means and then also i wrote a, this book for people who were on board with both of those things but to rethink it and to think about where um how they can think better about evangelizing to others and getting others to play video games that aren't currently playing 
But yeah, I think uh, it goes without saying, I'm definitely picking up that mantle. I uh, I will be starting one of well, these gaming sewing circles. In fact, uh, one of our regular co-hosts on the show, I already am talking, I'm going to talk to his wife about starting one. She uh, she does not play video games, but I, but I, I have a, I, you gave some good suggestions in the book. I've got a couple ideas. I'm pretty excited to do that. All right. So some other major contributions here. Um, as you, as you say, uh, makes the argument to non-gaming feminists that games are an important activist medium, um, play as a tool of radical disruption, which was key throughout the book. Um, and you do a good job of orienting some of your arguments to those who might not be familiar with the gaming medium or how important it can be. Um, I think that that really comes through as a major contribution. Um, uh, also, you argue for feminist leisure. So leisure being something that women are pretty bad at. Uh, not your words necessarily, uh, but you do definitely get that feeling as a way to, I don't know, fight the patriarchy, fight the system, be more activist, be more equitable in life. Um, the feminist leisure stuff really spoke to me. Um, as you know, I have two little kids and leisure time is, is tough, is really tough. So um, the- You are not alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I found myself, in fact, I was talking to um, a woman next door who has two, who has twins, seven years old, talking to her about her leisure activities and a couple friends of mine that I've known since middle school, you know, they have kids and I'm, I'm saying, well, what do you do for leisure? And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, when you're in time, do you make for yourself? Oh, I exercise, I garden, I cook, all of these things that are productive in a way that men's leisure time often isn't productive. Um, and when I proposed this this issue to my husband. He's like, well, you know, fishing, I do bring home fish for us to eat. <laughs> well, okay. Um, maybe like one out of a hundred times you can be productive in that, but I think it's very different kind of, uh, productive for leisure. So I, I, I felt like to me, that was one of the most interesting points just because it hit so, so hard home for me. Um, also expanding the scope of how feminists do games beyond focusing on the negative, uh, looking at, issues of race and representation and identity and um, these things, which certainly has been the majority of how I've spent my time in games is looking at the things, the way we're sort of being failed by games and then trying to look at ways to make that better, um, sort of repositioning the focus of not repositioning the focus, but adding an additional focus of, for feminists for how to do game studies into this getting better people to play games, I thought was a very uh, revolutionary approach um, to making gaming better for everybody um, that I thought was really exciting. So what do you see as major contributions of the book? I mean, to me, that is the biggest contribution, or I'd like to think that's the biggest contribution to play like a feminist. Um, that was the goal of it, to this idea of pushing beyond the usual audience of certainly academic game studies books. Um, to a broader audience. And um, those of us in game studies in general, um, and specifically those of us in feminist game studies, we all know the all of these arguments. There wasn't a whole lot new that I did here other than like I, I was, I referenced a lot of people. And that was one of, by the way, the joys of writing this book was that I got to reference all of these people that I love and admire. And um, Shout out to I, Shona Gray, who is cited numerous times in there, who we just were chatting she's about. Basically, 
She's basically the main character of a chapter. Yeah, she was kind um, of like you were having conversations with her throughout the book, which I thought was so cool. I did. And at a certain point I did, I contacted her. I was like, is it okay that I did this? I need to show you this chapter and make sure that you're cool with what I did. And she, I'm like, I kind of made you a straw woman and I'm sorry about that. And I hope we're cool. And she, she was fine with it. Um, so, but like what, what I wrote wasn't new. It was reframed, right? It was, and it was reframed because I wanted to see this, just these discussions launched outside of the usual suspects to get other people who don't usually play video games or even think about these kinds of things, think about mm. their leisure practices. I, I wanted a space for that audience to take it seriously. And so we, um, we have these conversations in academia that's so insular and it only speaks to itself and it just goes round and round. And the same thing happens in the video game industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, when um, what I realized and part of like the impetus for writing this book was after I wrote Ready Player Two, um, women that I knew would ask me for recommendations. They would be like, you know, or, or I would talk to them and I would say, hey, you should play this game. And people listen to me. Or, you know, for better or worse. And um, they, it, uh, every so often people would come back to me and say, and women specifically, and say, I never knew that games like that existed. And that comment really stuck with me because at a certain point, the video game industry knows that there are like these cool, interesting, artful games out there, mm -hmm. that are, there are these literary games that, that are more than just, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, like, um, I, I don't know. I, there's, there's certain, there's nothing wrong with, you know, Mario games, right? Sure. But there are games that do other things that they have access to just even on their phones and their tablets. And so I wanted to speak to that audience. And I really wanted to, to get that audience to pull them in and make, and, and get them to consider taking games seriously, just as they would any other medium. Hmm. Mm, that's really interesting to think about. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely found, uh, we were chatting a little before about games that I play now, and those games that people, you, that aren't, people probably wouldn't even consider video games or wouldn't certainly not make major video games it's all that I have the mind for right now in my life so it's that's uh that's really interesting um so tell me a few things you love about this book the thing that I love the most about this book are the footnotes which was like a deep battle in my life um I when I first well, because because I was writing to multiple audiences when I first came, like was proposing it, I, I wanted sidebars. I wanted full on sidebars. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of um, like MIT Press was so patient with me and so lovely and didn't actually try to kill me every time I would argue back and forth over like the layout issues and how we can possibly do this. And um, because because there were just all kinds of issues to the amount, because I did not want them as end notes. I wanted them in the text. I wanted mm -hmm. footnotes that spoke in conversation with the things that I was saying so that I could have all of these little asides that related back to the larger discussion. And um, the um, bless their hearts, MIT Press was delightful about it uh, and, and, you know, went along with it. And those footnotes gave me this opportunity to be playful. And I really, that was one of the goals when I was writing this book was that I wanted, I wanted this book to have joy in it. I wanted, I wrote, I came, was coming from a place where, um, you know, the, the 2010s were a tough decade. 
um, and ended on a tough year for sure, but, um, or a couple tough few years, but I was coming from a place where I just wanted, this was the book I wanted to write. This was the book that wasn't about, um, tenure. I, I, you know, um, I started writing it before I got tenure, but I was well into that process. This book was about things that I felt like I wanted to say and, I hoped people would listen. And so I did it in this way that to me felt very playful. I have, so I have no many, no idea how many footnotes are in that book, but there are a lot of them. Yeah. And um, they, um, they allowed me to, to be, to, to move around in my argument, to, um, to speak to multiple different kinds of audiences at the same time, because I was able to say, hey, this audience over, you know, feminist audience that doesn't know about video games, this is what this means, or to say, hey, um, you know, gamer audience that doesn't know about feminism, this is what this means. So it let me do that. But then I, at a certain point, I just like went full in and embraced the silliness of the footnotes and I have some really ridiculous ones in there that I just like to me were just like it was a book full of little easter eggs and sometimes I'll have forgotten half of them and then I'll go back and I'll read one of them I'll be like huh, I can't believe I published that <laughs> so I, I would say that's my favorite thing about it but also I mean I I do like that there there are no books out there like it that it that the personal nature of it along with the academic side of it made it feel like it was a book that that only I could have written and that to me and I mean like you know I, I have a lot of brilliant colleagues out there that have written amazing books and that's not me in any way diminishing their work but I I felt like I got to write the book that I was supposed to write well that's so wonderful yeah people kept asking me oh you know what did you think of the book I know you were reading that book and you kept talking about how much you liked it and I kept saying it's beautiful, which might not be like the classic way to describe an academic book, certainly. Um, but your the personal touch, the playfulness, the footnotes, which are not like footnotes you have seen before, for sure. Uh, just everything about it was, and that joy really came through. And reading it now post coronavirus, um, you know, I live in Minneapolis, post George Floyd, things like that, to find like this beauty and this joy um and playfulness was so moving for me and so they're like you read a book about video games and it was beautiful i don't understand i'm like well you would if you read the book i think um, well thank you that, that that means a lot to me <laughs> yeah well um and and right up there on the list of things that i love the tone um the playful thinking series in general how accessible everything you write um it's accessible but it's also academic it's it's practical and one of the things I love the most is when you're getting into feminist work uh, or any activist work, really, um, sometimes I think the theory and the ideas get in the way of how you can accomplish them. Like, okay, so we're going to solve all these problems. Okay, how do we do that? And it's, there's always a pause, like, well, I don't know what to actually do moving forward. And you not only give us like great re ways to put into practice the things that you're talking about, you have like a whole appendix. Okay, here's exactly how to do it. You want to start a women's gaming circle, boom, here's what you do, you know, or here's game suggestions, or here's, here's how I did it. I started this Facebook group and it kind of worked and this kind of didn't work. And um, so like that, that aspect of not just let's change the video game industry, rah, rah, rah. Okay. Now I'm on to my next book, but like, no, here, here's how we can. And maybe it's not perfect. Um, maybe it's not going to work for everybody. And you, you spend a lot, spend plenty of time, I think 
sort of hedging, like, I understand my experiences and everybody's experience. I understand that this isn't going to work for everybody and I'm empathetic to that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still move forward and make progress. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me that I loved was that I had never thought about before uh, was women being drawn to play certain types of games um, like Diner Dash and The Sims. And I'm a, we were talking a little bit about games before. I'm a Sims person. My, fa my favorite game, the only game I'm playing right now is, um, is uh, Don't Starve. I love, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, and that idea that women are drawn to this because it gives them control and it gives them pleasure in things that otherwise are never pleasurable. Um, maybe not never, but often are not pleasurable. So this was very revolutionary for me and very accurate for the games I'm drawn to and the women that I know, the kind of games that they're drawn to. So can you tell me about this idea? Like, did you come up with it? Are you going to write more about it? Because it just really lit a spark for me. So a lot of that came from my previous book, Ready Player Two, uh, which Ready Player Two, Women, Gamers, and Designed Identity, not to be confused with the pop novel recently released by Ernest Cline. Um, and in uh, Ready Player Two, I wrote a lot about how the video game industry designed games deliberately for women audiences um, in such a way that they essentialized women's leisure practices and designed not for women but this idealized version of what a woman player is and of mm -hmm. course like all different kinds of people regardless of gender identity play all different kinds of things in all different kinds of ways there 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 is not a essential woman player there isn't that that isn't a thing however it is treated that way in the industry mm -hmm. um the, in my in ready player two i quoted sherry grainer ray like very wisely saying um the uh the video game industry treats women as a genre not a market mm -hmm. and so there's there's sort of like th there's just the fact that you can have a conversation about what women's games look like as opposed to nobody would nobody would ever dream of saying well what kind of video game would a man like right like that's a ridiculous question that no, nobody would ever have that conversation and so um Part of what I studied in Ready Player Two is how those games are designed in such a way that they essentialize women's leisure practices in terms of time constraints, in terms of emotional labor, in terms of consumerism, and then in terms of like embodiment. Mm. And so I think that um, a lot of women are certainly drawn to a lot of the games that I write about. That's why I write about them. And that was sort of the, my start point when I was in grad school. That was sort of where I, I came from in this process was, oh, look, there are a whole bunch of games that are be designed with this idea of what a woman player looks like and behaves like. Mm -hmm. But also that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of women playing those games as well. And beca because that, that's the complexity and the messiness of it. And I play a lot of those games. I mean, I like I have spent so many hours of my life playing Kim Kardashian Hollywood. I can't even begin to 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 really unpack that. But um, so um, but and so I think a lot of women are drawn to the games that I write about. And that's why I write about them. But. I also like to think that a lot of those games are can be gateway games, right? To, to unexpected in unexpected ways. Um, a Farmville player mm -hmm. 
doesn't have to go far to turn into a Stardew Valley player. And I think that that's sort of the moment. Those are the kinds of games that really start disrupting how we understand our leisure experiences. If we're just like killing time in Farmville between tasks, that's a different leisure experience than when we're like deep in a Stardew Valley moment. Yeah, and uh, it's fun when you, now that we're starting to see more games like the um, sort of uh, Farmville Plus, the, the Stardew Valleys and, and uh, anim- Animal uh, Crossing and stuff like that, that people that, as you mentioned in the book, like you would never expect, oh, I've been, I love that game. I've been playing that game. Like, I, you know, I haven't, you know, talked to anybody about that or uh, in my, I have an academic moms group. And the other day, somebody said, is anybody playing? Uh, Animal Crossing. I need. I want some friends. I I need some islands to visit. Like, c- come on! And you like the thread of people of the women sharing their their um, Switch IDs or whatever they're called, um, Nintendo IDs was amazing. But I think that definitely speaks to what you're what you're talking about there. Um, and Animal Crossing definitely happened at this moment in the pandemic where it was sort of it, it was this strange catharsis island that we all got to go to at a moment that we really needed that specifically yeah um speaking of timing uh the book's been out for a year plus now we a lot has happened um if you could go back and change anything would you and what would that be so this is such a hard question um because i wrote i wrote a book in 2018 and in 2019 and it got published in 2020 and that is a set of things that have implications Mm -hmm. Um, 2020, like disrupted so much of what we understand and take for granted in our everyday lives. And absolutely, there are parts of this that I would have written differently within that context. But there are also parts that I think are more important than ever. So I've gone mm-hmm. through sort of this emotional roller coaster about how, like over the course of the year in terms of my relationship to this book. And where I'm at is that I hope that it will still carry meaning to some people and that that meaning that they will move it forward in their lives and and get something out of it, that they will use it to change their lives and the lives of the people around them. Um, that said, so in my book, I write that I, I sort of, um, I, I write that there are two kinds of people in the world, people who um, love video games and people who don't know which video games they love yet. And I'm at a point now where I've sort of revised that sentiment to there are two types of people in the world post pandemic people who have children and people who don't (laughs) and or people who have small children I should say and people who don't because people who have there there are people right now who have an immense amount of free time and that are looking for ways to figure out their leisure habits in new ways and exciting ways and have learned stuff about themselves and there are people who are so crunched for time that the idea of stopping to play a video game like for me to suggest that that's an easy answer would be insulting to say the least so I try and be measured at this point in how um, I prescribe play as a solution to anything really because I think that between between the pandemic and between the politics of 2020 and of Black Lives Matter, I, I it's it's impossible for me to to just be dismissively say no 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 play you know it like video games are the answer because they're not they, obviously they're not. However. I also think that leisure equality is a thing that we don't talk enough about still. And 
And this year is a year that we really need to have that long, hard talk with ourselves as a culture about the fact that we don't talk about our leisure in particularly healthy ways. And that's why so many people are so burned out right now. Mm, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned time and time's a, a section of your book that I struggled with. Um, the, the time versus temporal boundary making. And I felt like this was an important point and maybe because I didn't read the, um, the theor- theorist that you, I forget who it was, who you cited for where this idea comes from, but you talked about how this can help women make more time for games. Can you explain that concept a little bit? I, I mean, I, I really, I think that we need to stop treating leisure as zero sum, that my leisure, me having leisure doesn't mean that you have less leisure. And the more we think about how leisure is important for all of us, the more that we, the the more we can build a world where we can expect that leisure in our lives rather than treating it like the frosting in our lives. Um, Thinking about ways that, that, building more leisure time into our lives using sort of the elasticity of time in our lives to build more leisure in um, me also means looking at the people around us in our lives and saying, how can I make that person's life better and, and make leisure more of an opportunity for that person. And I, you know, leisure, leisure is an equality issue that is intersectional because we we don't talk about the fact that if somebody's working, you know, two jobs, three jobs, and raising children, that's just not even an option. Mm-hmm. The there's we we need to do a better time figuring out how leisure is a necessity in all of our lives rather than just something extra that some people get. Yeah, I think that's a that's a a really brilliant point that comes through the book really well. Um, I, I wonder, as we're talking about leisure, you talk in the book about, um, leisure needs like home needs to be a place of leisure and it needs to be separate from work. Um, of course with the pandemic and everyone's work is at home. Do you have, do you still think the home can function as a place of leisure? Do you have ideas for what we can do to make a leisure space for ourselves? I mean, I don't really, um, because I think that that we've all sort of, you know, had these hard moments in the past year where where we've had to rethink the, the nature of the world around us. And I struggle with it as much as so many other people do this past year as somebody who is is a parent like I, I have had. I could probably count the number of hours that I've had alone in my home in the last year, and that makes it hard. That said, you know, um, it's also gotten me to rethink about what family leisure can look like and how that doesn't have to be just a question of obligation, but, you know, activities that that are enjoyable for all of us. Um, I have uh, deeply embraced, I'm lucky enough to have a spare bedroom in my house where if I need a place to crawl into and be alone, that that I have one, but it's, it's hard. Everybody needs to figure out what that looks like. And and hopefully it will change again in the next few months. 
but it might not. And I think that like it's that that's a that's a hard question that I think we all need to grapple with on a personal level. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I tried. I have a two year old. I tried um, to see if she was ready. She's advanced in, in certain things. And I thought, well, maybe she's ready to play some video games with me. You spoke of family leisure time. So I gave her and she likes having a Xbox remote off while I'm playing a game. Right. So, so I handed it to her and I thought, okay, we'll try overcooked. Maybe she'll like driving the bus around, like didn't, didn't get it. She would like either look at the controller or just look up at the TV and not touch the control. We tried Rayman. Uh, we tried a couple other things. And it was uh, it was a no go so far. So so I'm very excited to keep pushing that and keep seeing if we can find what what family because her games right now are mostly handing me rocks. So mm, yeah, no. <laughs> but I want that. And I mean, I'm lucky. Here. My 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 son is older, so um, I mean, right now, um, the, over the pandemic, we've really embraced board games a lot oh. in my family, and so we've and like it's taken us a while, but we figured out that like the happiest solution to our like family leisure time, whatever that is, is um, playing large scale co-ops. And so we've been doing that increasingly. And it's just like, it like, it it took like a lot of trial and error to figure out like what is good, but, um, but it's, it's getting, it's getting increasingly fun and it's getting to be sort of a, a good hobby space for us. Do you have a favorite? Yeah. Right now we're, we're working our way through mansions of madness. Oh and, yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and it's great. Like, I mean, it, like admittedly the themes are very dark for an elementary age child, but, um, but he's fine with it. Um, he, he, he's aware of Cthulhu and, um, and it's like, it's so like anyone with a parent knows that like the worst thing about board games with kids is, is sort of that, that, that thing where you're trying to figure out whether or not you need to lose the game in order to make them feel better. And that's a terrible place to be in. And that makes it unenjoyable for the adults in the room. But what's nice about co-ops is that like you're, because you're all working together, you're, you're all debating and arguing and it like, and coming up with solutions together. And anyway, so yeah. It's a, that's a great uh, game to play together. I find some of them, um, I, as the gamer in the family, I take over too much in the co-op games, like uh, Pandemic. Um, like, I just, I know all the characters. I know all how to utilize them all the best, and people sure. get annoyed playing with me. But Mansion of Madness is not like that. Like, I think that's a, that's yeah, a story-driven so much. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, uh, right. it's really fun. Um, cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so final question, if you want people to do something after reading your book, I think I have an idea of what your answer is going to be, but if you want them to do one thing, what would it be? I want to turn us all into video game evangelists. And I want to see more people experimenting with playing more games and becoming tastemakers, right? Like, I mean, the more, the more people that play video games, the less we have to contend with the toxic elements of the video game culture and industry, right? The, the more it gets to be a, um, a mass medium that, that is truly a mass medium in that it's not being uh, assumed that it's gearing towards one niche audience or a couple of niche audiences. And I, I want to see us think about the folks in our lives that aren't getting enough leisure and think about how we can do a better job of getting them there. 
Yeah, that's really, that's a, like I said, of the book, it, beautiful idea, beautiful thought, the joy and the perspective that, um, at least for me right now was, was very, very valuable. So um, my bottom line, it's a, this book is a fabulous contribution. You are a fabulous contribution to game studies. Um, and for those looking to find new ways to engage in feminism and activism and play, um, and this podcast, definitely not enough to do the book justice. So go get a copy, go check it out, go be a video game evangelist and make Sheer proud. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to our discussion of Sheer Chess's book, Play Like a Feminist. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me here. This was a blast. Oh, good. Um, if you have any books or articles you want to hear us talk about, that you'd rather us talk about than you have to read yourself, please email us at gamestudiesreview at gmail.com.